Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Stop me if I've told you this before, but um, both Mark and I used to edit a magazine called Smash Hits. And, uh, yeah, there you go. And, uh, and the legacy of having edited Smash Hits is that, is that all over the world, where, where you go, you meet people who used to read Smash Hits. And you also meet a significant number of them who, who said... What made me want to be a writer was reading in Smash Hits, which is probably what they say to the editor of Flexi Pop and, you know, <laughs> and the Melody Maker and everywhere. But anyway, you know, we, we, we cherish these, these bits of feedback that we get uh, from people who once read Smash Hits. And our next guest, I, I, I feel confident in saying, has written the best book ever to be written by a former reader of Smash Hits. <laughs> wow. And is, I also confidently predict, is about to do for kind of uncelebrated pop music what Nick Hornby did for football with Fever Pitch. Uh, because so, uh, so Folsom has been the welcome uh, to his fantastic memoir, Broken Greek, Please welcome Pete Pavidis. Thank you, David. That was what a lovely introduction. Thank you. <laughs> and we but, should mention the reaction because it's been absolutely fantastic, isn't it? I mean, the last three or four days, <laughs> the book came out what three or four days ago, and it's just been just uproarious applause. I know. I'm d- I mean, you said that, I talked to you this morning. You said you've been levitating yeah, on the yeah. on the on the euphoria. Yeah, it's never going to happen again, is it? So I'm just completely like drinking it all up, and uh, I just, you know, I feel like to say I feel like a competition winner is the the biggest understatement of all time. You know, I just never thought I would find myself in this position. And tell people about the the people who played at your launch party the other day. Well, that's part of it. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's just brilliant. Okay, so I had a launch party uh, for the book at the social 
uh, on Little Portland Street on uh, Friday night. And I, I sort of, I, I arranged it, you know, when you, my publishers had certain ideas, they say you could have it in a bookshop, you could have it here, you could have it there. I said, well, let's try and make it a little bit sort of vibier, and I'll try and invite my mates, and we'll get maybe we can even get some live, live music. So I kind of did, an, I was struggling to find a, a venue that was free initially, and um, I did an, a, a shout out on Facebook. And one person who um, I'm friends with on Facebook is Mike Bat, the probably most famous for uh, being the guy behind the Wombles musical incarnation. And Mike is a lovely man. He's a very modest man um, and very self-deprecating, always eager to help. And he said, no no bother if you don't want me to, but, you know, I, c I can get up and do a couple of songs if you want me to. I was like, are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's mentioned in the book, the Wombles are kind of uh, quite an important sort of phenomenon earlier on in the book. I said, yes, I would like you to play some songs, you know, and I'm secretly hoping he'll remember you're a Womble. And uh, anyway, one thing led to another. Mike's friends with the, um, the composer David Arnold, who is married to Aos Council, who's the lead violinist in a classical pop uh, crossover group called Bond. So suddenly, like, one thing led to another. They were suddenly in this kind of ad hoc combo. Um, the Rails got involved, who are, uh, for people who don't know, James Walbourne, who's a guitarist in The Pretenders, and Cammie Thompson. Dan Gillespie Sells from The Feelings somehow entered the equation. Then uh, Mike, turned out that Mike was going to do Bright Eyes, so Kate St. John offered to do um, uh, Oboe on Bright Eyes. And then Helen O'Hara ended up, from Dexter's Midnight Runners, ended up joining this putative supergroup. And, and Chrissy Hine played Chain Gang. And so at the launch, unbeknownst to me, James Walborn invited Chrissy Hind along. And I'm doing like my speeches to thank my publishers and my family and what have you. And I can just see Chrissy Hind at the front there. <laughs> yeah. like, What's Chrissy Hind doing at my... I don't think I invited Chrissy. I mean, you know, I can't believe she's here. Yeah, I love Chrissy Hind. But, and, you know, I went into a kind of shock. And I knew that Back on the Chain Gang was in the set. But I just didn't somehow compute that maybe what was coming. And then anyway, track two, and uh, James gesticulate, James Walborn gesticulated to Chrissy. Suddenly she was on stage, and I was watching the supergroup of my dreams play at my <laughs> book launch, for a launch for a book that I didn't even think I'd ever finish, playing back on the chain gang. I mean, God. And that's before we even get on to the final the Remember You're a Womble with Helen O'Hara playing violin. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and David, so the, David Arnold playing guitar. So the book launch of the year will be remembered, you know, as climaxing with Remember You're a Womble, which is oh not my. what anybody in publishing would have predicted. You know what, if you could have bottled what was in the room at that point and, you know, manufactured it to order, you would have solved every problem in the world. Yeah. It was just wonderful. So anyway, the, the, you know, the, this couldn't be, you know, more out of character with the way you started this book because you did it in a rather unusual way, didn't you? Yeah, I just sort of, uh, I just started writing and I, I just, I had a couple of ideas that were sort of half-shaped. I sort of thought that there's a way of writing about music that you can sort of interweave with personally. The, the, way, we, the way we sort of love music, we don't love it in a vacuum. We love it because of all the things that are going on in our lives. And the, and early on, I feel, certainly in my experience, that 
all the 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 bands I loved, all the album, the records I liked, were records that seemed to be in one way or another explaining my situation to me, and um, and pointing a, a, a future possible versions of me that. I could sort of set my sort of sat nav for, if you see what I mean, and um, and that's kind of clear to me now. It wasn't necessarily clear to me then, but it is clear to me now. And I think that might have been accentuated by the fact that my parents are Greek, Greek Cypriot. They ran a fish and chip shop. They had a very different upbringing to mine. So there's a sort of vacuum where you're trying to figure out your identity. So I just started writing. I just thought I'll just start writing and see what happens and see if it turns into a book. And then I thought, this idea is unpitchable because it's quite confused. It's kind of two books interwoven into, into one. But you can't really separate them because I can't tell this story without telling the story of how my parents got here and how that impacted upon. So I'm just going to have to write this, really. And so I did it, and then I handed it to a publisher at the end. So, so uh, this is always an impossible question to ask, uh, to answer, but how long did it take you to write it? Because it's, I, it's I, a long book, isn't it? Yeah, I started in earnest in uh, at the beginning of uh, 2017, and I finished the, the, a, a draft that I was happy to show people. I finished uh, almost exactly two years later, around right. February 2019. And you were working at it pretty much all the time, were you? Yeah, pretty much. I, I host a show for Soho Radio, so that takes me about a day to prepare. So I, would, I try and do that for, for my own sanity as much as anything else. And... Um, and I wasn't really doing much music journalism throughout that time, you know. So I would do it sort of, you know, while I was waiting to pick up one of my kids from school or sort of, you know, I'd just sort of do it, you know, when there were no demands being made upon me in my, my, the, my other areas of my life. Right, right, right. So then you finished it, took it to a publisher and sold it. Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't be that simple. I wasn't expecting it to be that simple. Um, I, um, well, you're in a very strong position if you finished the whole book. I mean, you yeah, know, people know what they're buying. Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's an unpitchable idea, actually. Yeah. I mean, it, it, now, now that it's been written, it's, you know, it's a bit like, uh, there's a record I, I write about in the book called, you know, the, uh, the Adam and the Ants, Kings of the Wild Frontier album. And that's really an unpitchable idea as well. You know, a, a, a band largely comprised of sort of punk failures who had almost tried <laughs> yeah. a, a, everything under the sun to just try and get some kind of purchase. Punks found them ridiculous. These people had no chance of being pop stars. Um, the lead singer has just lost his entirely, entire band, so he has to recruit a whole other band. And, and then he has this idea that if he writes a load of songs about cowboys and Indians and pirates and puts a white stripe across his that might somehow get him a record deal. Yeah. <laughs> Or the Human League, where they sack the talent, the sort of talented yes, musicians, yeah. and then replace them with schoolgirls. That's an idea so yeah. in, insane yeah. that only only success can vindicate it. Nothing else. And um, so similarly, that right. my 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 book isn't quite as crazy as those things. But um, that's I had to write it so that it people could see it, and actually maybe it wasn't as a messy an idea as it would have been if I explained it. So it's a pop music story, but it's also a family story and a personal story. Yeah, it starts We um, it, it starts when we, um, we, we spend this idyllic summer in, in Cyprus, and, uh, and, that, and that really is a recce uh, that my parents have gone on because they're, they're planning to move. They've been in this country for 10 years. They're deeply homesick. 
and they're sort of starting to plan their return, their escape. They run a fish and chip shop in Birmingham, and I, and then, then the Turkish invasion of Cyprus happens. The island is partitioned. My dad can't go back to the village where he grew up, so all plans are off. It's sort of too dangerous, and so I return uh, to start infant school. And the sort of discombobulation of starting at infant school um, renders me... So I, I stop talking to people. Um, and it's, it's called selective muteness. Um, but uh, I, I stopped talking to everyone apart from my family. And I would only talk to members of my family if there, was no one, if there were no other people in the room. Or to my teachers if no children were listening. And not always even then. Um, and that carried on for three years. So... And that was, and that's that. Which that gave you a very, very strong connection with pop music, didn't it? I mean, you, there was a bit where you talk about uh, Leo Sayers' um, Leo hit Sayer. single at the time. As you, you think that that's um, a song that's that's written by you about your own mother. In a way, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's it, the book sort of opens with this journey coming back from this sort of psychiatrist uh, who is trying to get me to talk and. Um, and it's a failure, and we so we're coming back uh, in the car, and the, and when I when I need you, he's playing on the radio. And th this is the thing; it's kind of hard to sort of convey to maybe to younger people. You know, it's a dis when you're young and you listen to music, it's very intense. You know, you hear a disembodied voice on the radio. You don't know who Leo Sayer is. You don't know what the song is. You don't know you don't know what the title is. It is a wholly metaphysical presence. And the great thing about being a young child, and I think we all have equivalents of this, is that you become the song. You, the song somehow personifies you, you personify the song. And the sentiments of when I need you at that time, I just I had it with My Sweet Lord as well. Those were the two songs I remember just being a somehow, I kind of felt like they were kind of me. <laughs> I don't know. That's the best way I can put it. And that they, and you know, like, and that, and that, in certainly the case of when I need you, I was singing about my mum because it was that sort of total, all-consuming love that at that age is a sort of, you know, with a bit of luck, you do feel for your mother. And you got worried that your parents were going to abandon you, and you, you, you thought that yeah. if you were adopted by anybody, you'd want it to be the Brotherhood of Man. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> Mm. There they are. There they are. <laughs> they just looked lovely, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> they see. So the, what the what the not talking thing did? It made it made me feel very guilty. It, it made me feel like I was kind of screwing up. And that guy over here, we look at little Jimmy Osmond. He was my nemesis because, and every time he came on the television, I would scurry behind the sofa and start <laughs> crying. And uh, and he w he was everything that I had failed at being. He was this very obliging, sunny, um, <laughs> you know, together child. That's how it seemed to me. And I was this kind of mute freak who was just not playing the game. You know, I was not. And um, and so I started kind of obsessing upon people like this because I just thought it was entirely understandable. I loved my parents, but it was entirely understandable that. If the opportunity arose, they'd return me to the shop or something. And, uh, <laughs> and these guys just seemed great. And also, they were, I was starting to see myself as English. So if I was going to choose... Yes, I was going to say, because yeah. your, your, your given name is... Oh, Takis. Um, so my parents... Well, my full name is Panayotis. 
And that, that long story short, they, my parents called me Takis because it's a kind of communution, is that the word? Anyway, um, it's, uh, and so I kind of, I started at, um, uh, at primary school and announced to my teacher at the end of infant school that when I started at primary school, I was to be called Peter. And uh, I wasn't really expecting this to happen, but when the new term started, and God knows why, God knows why they took this request seriously, I was suddenly Peter on the register. <laughs> and and your parents didn't know this. I think they, they knew, but I think that maybe they thought it would pass or something. Or they, I think, you know, all parents were really, really busy in the 70s, you know, because, yeah. you know, dishwashers hadn't been invented. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> do you know what I mean? There's, there's a lot to do, you know. <laughs> Life was very inconvenient. And, um, <laughs> and so I'd start to, and I remember watching the Eurovision Song Contest with my mum the year that Brotherhood and Man won, uh, won with Sable Kisses for me. And... Um, they, I just loved them, you know, I just loved... And that song, which is like... And that song really represents the sort of cycles you, one can go through as a music fan through life, because I loved it in a very pure and sincere way. It was a song about a small child, um, and then, you know, you become a teenager, and you kind of... You impugn dark motives into things that don't necessarily have dark motives. So you say, ugh, they're paedophiles. They say, even though you're only three, ugh... <laughs> and uh, and then you become a dad, and then you and you learn all over again that there's this incredibly pure, intense, all-consuming love that you feel for your children, and you wouldn't you not only would you sing a song like that for them, you'd record you know entire operas for them, you know, and so you go full circle. So, but but one of the things that interests me in the book is is that is the pop music as a way of making you British, isn't it? Uh, absolutely, yeah. And that is completely apparent to me now in a way that I couldn't necessarily have articulated it uh, to myself at the time. Uh, and, yeah. and did you feel a kind of tension about it? Did you feel a sort of sense of guilt? Because your parents were obviously bringing up in a, in a, in a strongly Greek uh, culture and listening to Greek music and eating Greek food. And, you know, and there were you going off and being... Seduced by uh, British culture, I mean, does that, does yeah. that cause any tension? Or? Yeah. So the archetypes of um, pop star, the archetypal pop stars that I liked were very sort of together, square, straight, sort of British people. Um, uh, you know, Olivia Newton-John was. A, a, I know she was Australian, but I wasn't necessarily making yeah. that distinction at that point. Kiki D, you know. The, you know, the, the heavenly platonic ideal of the childminder that you would want to have, you know. Very kind of... Because you talk about Elkie Brooks being the nightmare childminder. You're terrified of the idea that Elkie Brooks might yeah. turn up one day. Well, I would watch... The, <laughs> I would watch Top of the Pops, and this would be... Like, this would be these would be the criteria, you know. So, you know, so obviously, Brotherhood of Man, great. You know, Olivia Newton-John, apart from the final scene in Greece where... You know, why did she have to go and do that? Why couldn't she be? Yeah. Cigarette, you know. Yeah. Was, um, <laughs> and, um, but then, you know, the, I remember, so there was a Top of the Pops when Elkie Brooks came on and did Pearls as a Singer. And it just sounded satanic to me. It just sounded, yeah. Like, yeah. It just sounded like slow ghostly, deathly music, like old people kind of rotting. And I just thought... 
That was my that was my uh, seventh or eighth birthday party. You can you can date it because obviously we're doing the Bruce Forsyth thinker pose. That's right. what we're doing there. Right. Right. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, that's um, that's what that is. Did you have loads of mates? Uh, not not very many. That was that. Probably that, that paints us slightly. It was my birthday party, and that was the, the, the birthday party that we had the final year that we had a fish and chip shop. So, obviously, lots of people wanted to go to it because a birthday party in a fish and chip shop, it, why, why would you not want to go to yeah, that? Absolutely. Yeah. And um, my parents closed, the, it was in the afternoon when the shop was closed. My parents, we would normally close the shop and turn the fryers off, kept the fryers on. And they seated us at a table, and they, we all had sort of chips. And um, and then there was in my parents' shop in Birmingham, there was a back room which was full of pinball machines and a pool table. And you, my dad, obviously, you, un, you the way you put free games, free goes on a pinball machine was by unlocking the front panel. And there's like a little wire that you press down which is like the weight of the coin usually makes it go down and that gives you a game and so my dad opened the front panels of all the machines and he kind of put loads of games i mean so this was Making this you was the, the most popular boy apex yeah. of my yeah. popularity yeah <laughs> absolutely and um the the one boy absent in this uh, photo is a boy in my class called paul blunn who made the terrible mistake of deciding to be a racist the week before um, the party? And um, he called. He decided, noticing the the obviously this the the word Greece, as in the country, and then Greece as in G R E A S E. He kind of he started calling me a greasy chip from Greece, uh, and. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it's sort of taunting me over a number of days. So I sort of, excuse the pun, battered him. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and he never came, and he regretted it ever since. But so much of the book is about, about the, you know, your Greek family kind of being, you know, and, and, and the, the British culture on the outside. There's, there's yeah. a certain amount of tension. You, you know, you watch Love Thy Neighbour and, and uh, the same thing is happening to you. There's some people next door who well, don't Love Thy Neighbour was more... The big one was Mind Your Language with my yeah. parents. Yeah. You know, Mind Your Language came on during a period where my parents were between shops. They'd sold one shop and my dad was waiting for an opportunity to buy another chip shop. And he, what he used to do is he used to buy chip shops that had been closed for a long time and try and increase their value by kind of building them up again. And so he was at, there was a period when he was at home which coincided with the, the time Mind Your Language uh, started. And my, for the people who don't know, Mind Your Language was a sitcom that was based uh, uh, kind of the idea of it was it was a night school and you had different students from different kind of countries. And every student was like every, every cliche of that nationality sort of funneled into one character. And so you had this very austere sort of Austrian woman and this, uh, this, this Chinese student that carried a Chairman Mao book around with her and so on and so on. And there was a stereotypical Greek called Max who uh, was constantly at odds with the stereotypical kind of randy Italian guy called, uh, what was he called now, Max? He'll come to me. And they would fight over the affections of this very glamorous French woman uh, called Danielle, I think. And, uh, and my parents loved it, you know. They just thought it was the best thing ever because, of course, they were represent. It was like they'd never seen a representation of themselves on television before. And so they would just be clutching the clutching cushions like Des O'Connor, just like laughing at it. So that was some, anyway, sorry, that was Mind Your Language. 
What I love about the book is, that, uh, and this is, you know, as you say, it's, it's quite a long book, but I don't mean that in in no, sense of hard to read or anything. No, but you've you've allowed yourself the space to to come to 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 cover the detail in all kinds of ways, and, and I'm fascinated by what I've learned about running a fish and chip shop, and. Uh, <laughs> And I, you know, when West Brom footballers in in the days when they used to buy chips, yeah, that's right, on yeah. the way home from games, didn't they? After a few pints, that's right. Yeah, that was so. That was the um, that was towards the the end of my parents' tenure running a uh, uh, a very modernistic hexagonal looking building called the Threepenny Bit, which was uh, which was kind of which, which had it survived would be a kind of modernist sort of monument, but sadly it didn't, and. Uh, West Bromwich Albion footballers used to come in on a Saturday night and uh, get their fish and chips from my dad. And my dad would tell me, uh, told me very late in the day that this was happening. And I, one of the light motifs, as it, well, probably the only light motif in the book, is this autograph book that I had, which I was desperate to get the autograph of any kind of celebrity in it. So, and it's a little bit like you know like charlie brown and the football and you know lucy pulling away from the football every time i try and get an autograph something goes wrong it's either and um and so my dad it's the last saturday that my parents were going to be working at the shop so i said to my dad can i just spend the whole day at the chip shop uh, thinking that you know knowing that west i'd get like brian robs brian robson was uh a regular, Len Cantello was in the uh, West Bromwich Albion team. Peter Barnes before he moved to Manchester United. This was very exciting to me. And just the previous week, there, there had been a great incident where they'd um, they'd sort of uh, I th- was it the previous week? It was right sometime before. There was um, a match in which Peter Barnes had scored a hat trick, and so he had the, the the if you score a hat trick, you get the ball, and they were. They were kind of having a sort of silly kick around in the shop, and one and one of them smashed a window, <laughs> and uh, and Brian Robson came into the shop a few days later and gave um, amply, handsomely compensated my dad for the damage to the window. So my dad always liked Brian Robson. Absolutely, my dad would always age. say, yeah, yeah. "Robson is a good man." Yeah, and he's yeah, kind of yeah, Greek yeah. <laughs> Break my windows anytime. Yeah, and anyway, so. Uh, the one thing I forgot to check that day was whether or not West Bromwich Albion were playing at home. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, in the book, I describe a very forlorn journey back from West Bromwich, which, again, is kind of like the reason it's kind of scorched in my memory is because, I, you know, my dad allowed me to play a, a comp- compilation tape I'd made. Uh, and it's that thing of, like, you know... Sometimes, you know, the right songs at the right time can just sort of, again, which is what the book's about, describe your situation to you. So, you know, just a song like by, like Carrie by Cliff Richard. Uh, and uh, and uh, has anyone heard Caravan Song by Barbara Dixon? Does anyone know that song? I mean, that still slays me to this day. That kind of, that, uh, that core anglais on it and... And the great thing is about being mates with Mike Batt, who wrote it, is that years later, you can, you can say to him, A, you can say, do you mind if I quote this song extensively in my book? And he's like, great, yeah, no problem. And secondly, you can say, you can say God, this song really moved me unimaginably so at the time. And then Mike says to you, well, you know, it's ostensibly a song about caravans, but actually I wrote it about, I was about to separate from my wife, and actually it's a song about what I was going through. But actually I just 
made up a chorus about caravans to sort of slightly obscure the fact that it's about and I thought God you well yeah and that's how that's why it kind of slightly resonated with um the kind of fissures that I was starting to notice in my own parents' relationship, and which nicely brings us on to Abba. Yes, because go on, you write an awful lot about There's a Abba, huge amount about Abba. You talk about the, 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 listening to Abba records and realising the depth of, of emotion mm. that could be got across in, in, in music. In fact, you write about Waterloo and saying it's, the, it's, a, it's like the recording of a war or fireworks. You mm. know? That's how it sounds. Sculpt- you call them the sculptors of the zeitgeist. You know? And it's, yeah. great, it's great to find someone applying that to, to, to Abba, which is not often the case. You know? Well, slightly more, th- thankfully, slightly more these days. But... Yeah. Um, but I sort of think that um, Abba is sort of the Greek chorus, really, to the, to, the, to the entire book. And Abba, of course, were also people who, certainly at the beginning, I was very happy about the idea that, you know, maybe they might want to be my parents. Um, yeah. And, you know, things about, you know, people used to say, well, Abba is so boring. I used to love the fact that Abba were boring. So you'd see Abba on Swap Shop. And, you know, you know Benny and Bjorn would turn up and be interviewed by Noel Edwards. They looked like they were just, you know... Delegates from a sort of Swedish plastics company that had come to sort of yeah. um, that had come to a, some kind of expo to sort of uh, to sort of work out how many mouldings they needed to buy for their plastic chairs for for Q4, and um, <laughs> and I love that about them because that made them more mysterious to me because then you'd cut to a video of knowing me knowing you, which is just an exercise in absolute desolation. And the great thing about knowing me, knowing you, if you're a child, is it talks about a, a, a relationship ending like it's the end of the world, which, of course, if you're a child and you think about your parents separating, it is the end of the world. It was totally... And you go, how are these guys writing this music? And it kind of... There just seemed to be an ABBA song for every situation. Money, money, money was like to me just sounded like a sort of explication of my parents quandary they were immigrants money really was the sort of index of their sacrifice being here in a place that they didn't really want to be in because they couldn't really go back home and so it goes on you know throughout their career so but then you know things start to happen as you as you're growing up you get the arrival of punk rock which mm. you and a lot of it's seen through your, your brother, who's four years older than you. He's, right, he's bringing, yeah. You're actually too young. I mean, you were sort of eight or whatever when punk rock happens. But it's really interesting yeah. seeing an eight-year-old write about what impact that has. So what do you remember about the arrival of the Pistols? What I remember about the arrival of the Pistols is, um, is really them really having an effect, certainly in my part of Birmingham, uh, at a time when, certainly in the music press, they were adjudged to be over, really. Um, the Great Rock and Roll Swindle was the first Pistols album that entered our house. And um, and that was really... They weren't over... To us, they weren't over. Actually, punk made more sense in, uh, in a way at the tail end of the 70s yeah. when you had these sort of slightly ersatz groups like Sham 69, the members singing songs like, you know, The Sand of the Suburbs, obviously, Solitary Confinement. Um, these songs which sort of kind of articulated the, that, this sense of nothing much going on in the suburbs. Uh, and, um, and, the, and the Pistols, I don't know, songs like Silly Thing and, and uh, 
you know, the version of Come On Everybody, they got played more in our house initially than Anarchy in the UK. That did change. He brought those in later as well. But and Give us your interpretation of Roxanne by the police, which is fantastically original. So Roxanne was my introduction to the world of prostitutes. Um, <laughs> I was... Um, so I would have been... I was just... I, I was just about to uh, reach my 10th birthday, I think, if, that's, uh, if I remember rightly. And, uh, and this song was just... It kind of haunted me, but I didn't know why. And, and, I sort of, and this line about the red light was... was why, why did Sting want to... What was this business about put, put, a, put on the red light? So um, I said to my brother, What's, why, is she, why is she putting on a red light? And he just looked at me witheringly. You know, you know when your older brother tries to look as you know, like as mature beyond their years to accentuate the gulf between you. And uh, you must know that. Mustn't you? Of course, I'm nine. Why would I know that? And uh, and he's like, because she's a prostitute. <laughs> and I said, okay. <laughs> What's a prostitute? <laughs> and uh, he said, it's um. It's it's someone you sort of pay the money to to have sex with them, and uh, why? That's okay, but but you th you talk like about sex like it's a good thing and like money like it's a good thing. What's why is it so you know? And anyway, it was explained. And well, the upshot of it, the upshot of Roxanne was basically it kind of made Sting this sort of heroic. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, kind of. He, and you know, the, his band were called the Police, so I kind of almost thought of him as yeah. a, a sort he was of like trying to rescue prostitutes. It's like yeah. 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 yeah, 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 and, and to try and persuade them to. to See, to what I love this throughout the book, the you, 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 way you you kind of impute in, innocent motives to things that are not innocent at all. And my favourite example, I think, is um, is Greased Lightning, the song from Greece, the soundtrack of Greece. Yeah. Where there's a line, it's a real pussy wagon. Oh yeah, yeah, no, it, I yeah, I just thought it was like a, 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 some means of carrying cats from. <laughs> I mean, why on earth would I not think that? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think you actually say it's such a great car, even the cats want yeah. to get in. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. I love that idea. Yeah. But it. <laughs> <laughs> But I suppose, how else would you... But you are, you're a child, and you know everything is confusing when you're a child. 70% of what you see it does not make sense anymore. And, uh, you know, from the fact... Because, of course, your parents are too busy to explain everything, you know, so you have to sort of learn things in sort of this circuitous way. Yeah. You know, why your parents... Why, why... There's no reason why my parents should know that I get Freddie Starr confused with Fred Astaire. Or... <laughs> <laughs> Or the, you know, the, the, you know, there's something called the Pink Panther, and it's, uh, but there's sometimes you watch films called the Pink Panther, and there isn't a Pink Panther in them, but then there's this program that's got a Pink Panther in them, and just why, you know? Yeah. You, you, you start to get a bit of financial independence, mm. and you start to buy records in a big yeah. way, and the way you bought, you bought a lot of records at Woolworths. Were you the classic Woolworths? Singles buyer in the in the days when mm. Woolies was where most yeah. of the singles in the UK was sold. Yeah, I used to gaze adoringly at this wall which had like seventy five little shelves on it, each one of them corresponding to a, a number in the charts. In the chart, yeah. And um, and that was you know that was that was my sort of 
that was like my kind of st stock exchange, my sort of, you know, that was, that was where all the important information was. And you go in there on a Wednesday and all the new chart positions, uh, everything had been kind of put into its new chart oh, positions. Well, right. yes, and, then, and then what you could see what, which songs you could wait and get half price because if like... If oh yeah, they cut the corner off them, didn't they? When they yeah, were so if like, them, right, yeah. if Give Me Back My Heart by Dollar was at number 68, so it was on the 68 shelf, and they had six copies left. You knew that, that if you came in after school on Wednesday, you could get Give Me Back My Heart for 50 pence. <laughs> <laughs> Which I did. Have you still got all these records? Most of them, yeah, yeah. Right, I mean, right. I've got Give Me Back My Heart, definitely. Right, right. Say, so are you the kind of person where you look at a record and you think, I could tell you where I bought that? And yeah, and I think that's one of the great things about you know, if you can, uh, holding on to your stuff because it just becomes this three-dimensional diary uh, which, you know, it, it tells you what you were doing. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I, I listen to, I stream music as well, but I do try and buy records because I, I like the fact that you can attach a memory to the purchase in the way that you can't really with a download. There's lots of records that you talk about, and uh, we may have time to talk about, you, you know, listening to the, the Velvet Underground being a really good example. But another one is, is the Jam Setting Suns. Mm. And, and you're there with your elder brother, and, he's, and you sit there and take it intensely seriously, listening to this yeah. record and trying to find out what it's all about. And why did it have such an impact on you? Uh, again, you know, I sort of think that, you know, records either connect or they don't connect emotionally, and then late, la later on you sort of, you can sort of figure out how they... Have found purchase in in your life. And I think with Setting Suns, which Paul Weller himself says now, it's a it's a record. It's a sort of farewell to all that. You know, it's a sort of it's inspired by, you know, the, the a kind of naivety in a childhood to which he can never return. It's about how you know the alliances you forge may not necessarily survive into adulthood, but you know they're meaningful and they make you the person that, that you are. And you sort of you know, you see on songs like Thick as Thieves, which are just, you know, there's so, there's so much heart in those songs uh, because it's a little bit like one final audit of a world to which he can never return. And, um, you know, that's carried on to a certain degree in sound effects as well. It's, um, you know, I think Paul Weller at that point was, was just writing out of his skin in terms of noticing things about, noticing that kind of beauty in the the small details of suburban life that no one else was kind of putting down. And that's kind of why, slightly loftily, I compare him to William Blake, because I just think, you know, I think that's, that's entertainment is just to this day, you know, astonishing. And that, you know, I, I think I said it kind of glistens like rain on a wet cortina under a street lamp, because that's just... Ma that's a chronic. That's a very. It's a loving chronicle of just the, the magic that you sometimes see just on a suburban street in the middle of nowhere. But you're also at the same time. You are. You know. You, you're equally respectful of people who, who are less exalted than Paul mm. Weller. Well, yeah, because at the time I wasn't really. I wasn't. I wasn't old enough to try and be cool. So I wasn't really making those distinctions. I was just sort of. Honoring, trying to honour the emotions that these songs instilled in me. And in a way, actually, I think there was a period in my 20s when I was a music journalist where I kind of wasn't doing that. And 
that kind of makes me a bit sad, to be honest. Um, I, I sort of do try and do that. In many ways, I think I was smarter when I was nine. But it's the pretty cool so, phase hey, of your life. Seriously, you're smarter when you were nine than when you were a music journalist. In some senses, because I, I was absolutely honest, you know. And, yeah. um, and I try and be honest now, and I try and, you know, really absolutely honour the emotions that I have. The Bee Gees are a really good example. I think Spirit... I don't, how many people have heard Spirits Having Flown by the Bee Gees? Cheers. So you'll hopefully know what I'm about to say. I think Spirits Having Flown is just literally one of the greatest albums of all time. And it, the mood, there's a peculiar mood to that record. I mean, the Bee Gees are absolute masters, and they did it in the late 60s, and they were doing it at this point, the, writing about love as though it's a sort of almost like an, a, an affliction or a kind of heart disease or something. And um, it's... Um, there's just an existential weight about them at, at this on, on the Spirits Having Flown album, which you can hear on the song Spirits Having Flown, um, and um, you know how deep is your love. All these songs, which you know, love you inside out, you know they don't sound happy. They, there's a kind of pensiveness which carries on to the final album, and I can only think that subconsciously it's because they're on top of the world, and there's no, the only way is down. And I think at some level they know that, and I think it's all over that record. Yes, it's an interesting point. It is. <laughs> I think I th that's what I think is going on. So and you also I, make I, the I'm point guessing that you don't subscribe to the the theory of guilty pleasures. Well, I I, I understand the importance of guilty pleasures. Um, I I think personally, I think guilty pleasures is a sort of, you know, some people are more insecure about declaring their affections than others. And I think the job that Guilty Pleasures does is it, it provides a sort of quarantine for records that have yet to be re-evaluated and welcomed back into the canon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, well put, yeah. and that's, we saw it happen most memorably yeah. with ABBA in the early 90s when ABBA Gold came out. They were just sort of held there for a while and then Bjorn again were doing their thing and all of this sort of... Then we've said, no, come in, Abba, we love you. We actually love you more than almost yeah. anyone else in the world. And that, I think that's what Guilty Pleasures yeah, is. Yeah. When you're 10, I think it is, John Lennon dies, and you write about your reaction to that, and, and also work out that John Lennon, you didn't realise, was a member of the Beatles. And no. you didn't realise that Paul McCartney of Wings was a member of the Beatles either. And so you embark on this journey to go back and, and discover the Beatles. Yeah, it's really interesting hearing that written from the point of view of somebody who's 10. Was so what was, your what was your recollection of all that? There was a very important character, person in the... She's not a character, she's a real person, uh, called Jed, short for Geraldine. She's the girl next door, she's four years older than me, and she's a bit like an older sister, basically. She's endlessly patient with me in ways that, to this day, I don't entirely understand. She was at the launch the other day, and it was so nice to see her there. But, um, and... Um, and um, I came home, from, so on the, morning, on the day that John Lennon died, I went to school, and then when I came back, I saw, I knocked on Jed's door. I was always knocking on her door for one reason or another, and um, she was very tolerant of me, and she said, it's terrible about John Lennon, isn't it? I said, yeah, yeah. Really. And in a way, I sort of felt that, because I was so more connected with pop music, I sort of felt, even though most of what I loved about John Lennon was this record here, which I just thought... It's double fantasy. Feel like well, it's no, specifically like starting, starting over. Yeah. Yeah. Because, and I didn't really understand why uh, critics were so sniffy about it, because 
And, you know, they're saying, well, you know, he's a bit toothless now and, you know, the, the politically engaged John Lennon of before is, you know, maybe he needs to come back and so forth. I just thought this is like... I just love this like you would love any pop song because it is just a very sweet pop song. It's like there's that... It's very influenced by, as he always was, by 60s girl groups. Uh, there's that bit uh, which sounds a bit like Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys. Who would have a problem with any of that? So I adored that song, and I also adored it because that was kind of how, you know, one day I wanted to fall in love and, and feel the feelings that this song seemed to evoke. So that, it, it sort of hit me hard, even though I didn't know about the Beatles. So anyway, I went to, the, I went to Jed's house, and she said, you know, she said something about, she, she said something about the, the, the Beatles and about the fact that Paul McCartney was in the Beatles. And I, and I just like, Paul McCartney from Wings. <laughs> I said, yes, don't you? Yeah, Paul McCartney, he, he was in the Beatles as well, didn't you know? Said, Paul McCartney and John Lennon were in the same band. <laughs> That's amazing. So they're like a super group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they were like a supergroup. And she played me, um, she got a biscuit tin of records that her older brother had left in the house before he'd left to become a teacher. And she played me I Am The Walrus. And... <laughs> what a place to start. That's yeah. that's <laughs> that's not going to start with She Loves You, then. That's right. That's like, And it was like the... I say in the book, I just thought it was, it was like the Petri dish from which ELO were grown. And... Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, and then she lent me an album, The Beatles Oldies But Goodies, and uh, which was a 1966 compilation. Which uh, and I went home and I played side one, and it was just fucking mind blowing. I mean, it was like it just it, it was like I'd been in an accident. I couldn't remember. You know, when you're in an accident, you can't yeah. remember what happens just before, and. Just, you know, she loves you, I want to hold your hand. It was just like, and another one, and another one. It's just, yeah. why, why have people been withholding this information <laughs> from me? And well, they had it in those days, hadn't they? You well, there you couldn't get it. And then I remember I was so upset, so I taped it and then gave the record back to Jed. And I just thought, well, I've, cleaned, I've got some very important... I just need to tell people about this. And so, and I thought, well, I need to tell my dad because I think maybe he doesn't know about the Beatles because otherwise he would... <laughs> he would... <laughs> He would play, he would have played them to me, and so um, so I put um, so and every day because he had a chip shop. The only day that he could go to the tip to kind of to kind of get to throw away all the old sort of chicken boxes and what have you from um, from the chip shop was on a Sunday morning. So I invited myself to the to the dump with him one Sunday morning with the express purposes of playing him the Beatles, and uh, so I went out into the car and he was just kind of like. And there wasn't any room in the passenger seat. It was just full of boxes. And, and, and my dad turned around, what, you're coming with me? I said, uh, yeah. So he kind of sort of shoved some, like, smelly old boxes uh, out of the way. And I just sat there. And I put the cassette in. And it was raining. I remember it was raining really, really hard. And um, we were just pulling into the municipal tip when Eleanor Rigby was playing. <laughs> and he just, like, 
it was just a pretty i mean it was i loved it but it was a kind of dismal scenario really you know it was like everything was smelly <laughs> um and we were in the tip and then he just politely just took the cassette out and then he didn't say anything else so my experiment failed sadly one of the groups who figure more um significantly in your book than probably they have ever figured in any <laughs> they're, they're, they're not in england's dreaming that's for sure <laughs> <laughs> Are <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Baron Knights? No, I know. I adored the Baron Knights. Again, remind people who the Baron Knights yeah, were. Also, I, they were the first the, group I ever saw. Actually, it wasn't the oh, golden no. age of the Baron yeah. Knights, was it? It was the kind of reborn Baron Knights. It, well, yeah. I mean, but yeah, to me, that was the golden age of the Baron Knights. Okay, so, right, uh, right. But so, describe so, them. They were kind of, kind of. Parody group, weren't they? They were. So the Baron Knights thing was, and the first record, the first seven single I ever bought was a Baron Knights record called "A Taste of Agro," and um, and it was a hit late in 1978. And the thing that the Baron Knights did, uh, many of you will know this, is they would do a medley of uh, three songs that were in the charts in the preceding year and change the lyrics so that they were funny. And um, and I um, <laughs> and I saw them on top of the pops. Doing that, and I just thought, I mean, that was my punk, you know. It was a kind of thought, yeah, yeah. I just, how are they allowed to do this? Do they not? Do the do Boney M not mind that they've <laughs> that they just taken the Mickey out of their song and and done? I, and it just seemed like the naughtiest thing that you could ever do, you know. And so, um. I was just full of admiration for them, and yeah, I just thought that's just amazing. So, and as it, as it happens, the following day, we were going past the record shop. My mum said, and my mum saw me looking longingly in the display, and she said, "Do you want a record?" I said, "Can I have a record?" She said, yes, you know. And uh, and um, we went in there. And I was, my first record was uh, a taste of agro, and I was just, it was just, and that just started. I was weirdly loyal towards the bands that I like. I would carry on buying their records after, which is, you know, we're not talking about a sort of, you know, like a. Joy Division fan here. We're talking about like Racy and the Baron Knights, yes. yeah. you know. And so I would be o ordering their records. Yeah, yeah, I would yeah. be ordering their records because they were too unpopular for the record shop to get them in. Yeah. And um, and so and there's a. I went to see the Baron Knights in Cabaret with oh, my uh, fantastic uh, scenes when you meet them and try and get their autograph. Yeah, I tried to. That was another band whose autograph I tried to get. I mean, I, won't, I probably won't spoil. This story has got a bit of a dramatic denouement to it, but um, I saw them in Cabaret and uh, and hung around afterwards uh, in an attempt to and, and did. I I tried to impress them. I'm not going to say any more. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You'll have it didn't to go very it. well though. Yeah. No, no, your love for groups like this is fascinating. I, I was thinking, of Pete and I, we had dinner somewhere years ago. I remember. And I was talking about my time of Smash Hits and reeling off all the groups I'd interviewed. And the only time he stopped me was when I said I interviewed Racy. Oh, yeah. I said, you interviewed Racy? I loved Racy. Uh, does anyone remember Racy here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my knees would never forgive me if I did that. that. Um, well, Racy, again, it's that sort of thing of music explaining your life to you. You know, you look for versions of yourself in pop music. And this... This slightly sort of, you know, adenoidal, listless, scrawny, relatively friendless child. Yeah, I wasn't going to like Bruce Springsteen, was I? I was going to like the little man from Racy, who just, who looked a bit needy and pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> he, 
he was my man, you know. I carried, I, 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 I bought everything by them. Every, I, I followed them to the bitter end. Then final 1982 release, Not Too Young to Get Married. <laughs> There's a great moment where you see Dog Eat Dog, Adam and Nancy doing Dog Eat Dog on, on Top of the Pops, and talk about the, the effect the next day, that the whole school has already appears to be changed yeah, by I mean, right, new fashion, was, and soft sell as well. It was the news, you know, and soft sell. I, I was so happy that... Um, the girl that lived two doors away, uh, Helen Day, who was two years older than me in school, and Helen had, had a very emphatic, slammed into adolescence very emphatically, and she was firstly, she was obsessed with adamant, and then Mark Alman just became the object of her adoration. And at my school, there was, my, my school one time decided to put on this um, entertainment, this kind of um, talent contest at lunchtime in the school hall. And Helen, Helen, oh, I just told her real name. I didn't call her Helen. Although it's fine now because she likes the book. But in the book, because <laughs> you have to do that, you see. Um, so in the book, she's called Emily May. And, um, and Emily, <laughs> um, Emily decides to um, dance, do a dance, a solo dance to uh, Tainted Love and uh, uh, with an abrupt cut into Bedsitter. And she kind of... Um, and I just, I'd heard that this was going to happen. I just thought this was going to be uh, just a, a, a all-time brilliant cringe moment to behold. So, um, so I kind of went in and, um, you know, and she was the laughing stock of the school. She changed into this tiny little sort of sequined, um, oh, like a blouse yeah. that she was wearing as a dress. And she'd put makeup on and stuff. And she did this ridiculous dance to Tainted Love, which at the time I just thought, I, I just thought it was just embarrassing and like, why'd she do it? She's humiliated herself in front of the school. And the nice thing about writing a book like this is you can, re, you can revisit, you can actually, re, you realise what it was that she was trying to do. You know, she was, she didn't, she knew that people were going to laugh at her. I didn't give her the credit for that. She knew. She was honouring her love of Mark, and she was, and, and in a sense, that was braver than anything I did in those entire five years at school. It's like having a new tattoo. You want to just show it off. And it hurts, and people might think it's silly, but you don't care because you have this total, total love for these people. Yeah. This is one of the things that goes through the book, isn't it? It's a very kind of forgiving book, isn't it? I don't. I mean, things have turned out okay for me, so that maybe that's a factor. I don't know, but we're all trying to figure our way. You know, you as a, you're just trying to figure your way into adulthood, and you know, we're all kind of a bit lost, and uh, we're all sort of, you know, uh, not, not maybe not victims of circumstance, but cer certainly we're all trying to sort of we're all battling, you know, our various sort of adversities. And as kids, you know, we do, you know, we. Kids turn on each other very easily uh, because they're scared. Um, you know, all that stuff happens at school. I've got, I've got no, you know. So this book it goes up to when you're up thirteen. Yeah. What's next? I don't know. I don't know if there needs to be another one. I, I'm just happy that um, that I finished this one. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. You know, I, I'm, I don't. This is one more book than I ever thought I'd write. I, I, in all honesty, I, I never thought I'd write a book in my life. And I almost kind of tricked myself into writing this one by not looking for a publisher. I just thought, well, if I start writing, let's see how it goes. And, uh, and if it's kind of not great at the end of it, then I don't have to show it to anyone. Well, it's fantastic. It's a terrific book. Thanks, Thanks very much for talking to us about it. Peter Fides. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.
This podcast is brought to you by The Word. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.